Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Spending splurge, Yellen promising more money, but warns of tax rises too. Maritime mayhem, a ship runs aground, blocking the Suez Canal and hiring Harry. We speak to the Duke of Sussex's new boss. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to all our first movers around the globe. Lots to get to this Wednesday, including the global reflation rethink, potential Reddit regret, GameStop results disappointing, and a royal role shift. Prince Harry heads to Silicon Valley. We'll speak to the CEO of the firm that's hired him, mental health app Better Up. In the meantime, U.S. investors seem to be in a better headspace after Tuesday's losses. Tech, as you can see, they're outperforming as bond yields continue to retreat. European reopening stocks, so meanwhile, continue to struggle as vaccine delays and lockdowns weigh on sentiment there. Even Asia, in fact, had a tough session with the Hang Seng falling into correction territory, down some 2% in the session today. Chinese stocks now lower by over 3% year to date, not helped, of course, by concerns about regulation of big tech names like Tencent. There latest earnings and all the details coming up. Not helping sentiment either, meanwhile, as we talked about yesterday, AstraZeneca's latest, quote, unforced error, so-called by Dr. Fauci, of course. We await updated U.S. trial data. That's expected in the next 24 to 36 hours. Either way, Fed Chair Jerome Powell's perennial patience continued yesterday. Both he and the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen acknowledging the faster-than-expected U.S. recovery. They dismissed inflation and financial stability risks while pushing for more support for those hit hardest. Well, how about an additional $3 trillion worth of infrastructure spending and social support. And as mentioned, the tax rises to pay for it. We can certainly expect more questions for Powell and stimulating policy pal Janet Yellen in Congress today. To discuss it all, Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, we can talk about the fact that they reiterated all the things that they've been saying and at policy meetings, of course, for Jay Powell. But tell us more about the potential contents of this three trillion dollar additional spending proposal. We know that the president's aides are working hard on this. They're going to present him to him in coming days, maybe as early as next week. But I don't think it's a mystery what he said on the campaign trail and what he has promised again and again since he became uh, president here. He'd like a big infrastructure push. We know that. That's roads. That's bridges. That's rail. That's maybe 5G. Don't know if that's on the table here. That's schools. That's also retraining uh, for so many workers and a focus on domestic manufacturing. That's in the per- first part of this. Maybe that's a little bit easier to try to sell to moderate Democrats and and, uh, folks on the other side of the aisle, but remains to be seen. The second part is this caring economy, this fairness issue, making that child tax credit that's in the most recent stimulus, making that permanent, maybe a minimum wage, free community college. Uh, These are are, are things that have been a wish list of his and progressives for some time. Maybe that's part two of this uh, overall uh, package here, uh, pre-K, universal pre-K and the like as well. But it, it, it's $3 trillion. And uh, the president has said you're going to have to pay for this sometime or other. He had promised, of course, right, taxes on people who make $400,000 and more, uh, corporate taxes going back up uh, from that very low 21 percent after the 2017 uh, tax reform. And Janet Yellen was asked about this, how to pay for all this yesterday. Listen. It is necessary to 
um, pay for them. They will, will, this will be spending um, over a 10-year horizon and would require some additional funding. He's been clear about the tax proposals that he would consider. One of those would be um, an increase in the corporate income tax rate back to, to 28%. Now, what a lot of folks are talking about in the corporate world, is that just the starting point? Is this a negotiation here? Remember, the U.S. corporate tax rate was 35 percent. Companies had begged for something more like 25 percent. President Trump and Congress passed 21 percent. Is there wiggle room back to, say, 25 percent that makes everybody happy and raises more revenue? Uh, we don't even have the proposal yet, but those are the sorts of things that people are trying to game out. Julia. Yeah. And we were already talking about tax rises to pay for the near two trillion dollars that was just agreed. Never mind tax rises to pay for an additional three trillion dollars. I think you said it. All the critics out there have wanted this kind of policy, growth producing fiscal policy, yeah. rather than perhaps just seemingly throwing money at the system, however important it is and, and required. You also said a wish list for progressives. And I think that was precisely done. And yes. the risk here is that it be, remains a wish list for progressives. And um, everyone else perhaps can want on. Is this one big package as well, or is this uh, pieces of legislation that he can negotiate going on here? You know, we're, we're only halfway through the first 100 days of this president's tenure. He already has landmark legislation under his belt. I do think that there is broad agreement that infrastructure yeah. can be a good idea with interest rates so low. Congress has never had the winds all aligned here to get it done for some time. You and I have been talking about infrastructure for a long time. This should be easy can it be easy? Congress hasn't done it. You know, it hasn't done it. But uh, w there can be a lot of wins in infrastructure. Republicans, Democrats, big cities, small towns, and it's an investment in the future. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be, to your point, a $3 trillion price tag. You can break this down and get the pieces, some pieces done, which should be, um, which should be the, the main aim. Christine Romans, thank you so nice much for that. Nice to see you. All right. One of the world's busiest waterways at a standstill. A huge container ship ran aground in Egypt's Suez Canal, blocking traffic on this crucial trade route. John Defterius joins us now. John, nothing, I think, illustrates the importance of this trade route more than how quickly it backs up with other vessels when a container that's longer, I believe, than the Eiffel Tower runs aground. Talk us through this. Yeah, it's quite a challenge, uh, Julia, because the Suez Canal handles about 50 uh, vessels a, a day uh, and handles about 12 percent of world trade. But think of this as almost as a motorway uh, pileup, but happening on the sea. And the Suez Canal, of course, connects the Mediterranean to the Red Sea and then out to the Indian Ocean. Now, we've got some news uh, breaking in the last couple of hours on this, according to the Suez Canal Authority, suggesting that there's been movement in the vessel. There were nine tugs trying to get it from being horizontal to parallel with the Suez Canal. It entered at the southern tip of the canal at a narrow point here, and that's why there's a struggle. The reports of very strong winds and then a blackout which made it difficult for the Ever Given, uh, which has been uh, leased there by Evergreen Marine right now, to uh, get itself right back onto the traffic passageway. So it didn't happen. Uh, it's interesting now what happens next here in terms of uh, global uh, container traffic. This is a huge vessel, a VLCC 
a very large container carrier that can handle 20,000 units. And if you look at the video pictures and the still pictures that are out there, it looked fully laden. So the challenge was, can you move it? Yes, it seems to be the answer. The other option was to try to dig it out. If that didn't work, you're going to have to try to unload the cargo uh, to refloat the boat. But we have some movement here. But the clarity we're looking for, when can the other vessels, some 50 to 60 that are backed up, start to sail again? Julia. Yes, watch this space. John, what about the implications for the oil market? Clearly, it's an important uh, route for all flows into Europe as well. And we've seen an about turn in oil prices that were lower this week and now pushed higher, it seems, by um, in response to this. Yeah, it's amazing what a traffic jam can cost to the oil market, right, Julie? We had almost a $7 correction in the last week. And if you look at the latest prices here, we're trading above 62 on Brent with this uh, gain of better than, what, 2%. So that's quite a turnaround. Uh, Normally, the Suez Canal handles about 5 million barrels a day. That's not a major disruption to the market, which uh, takes in now, in terms of demand, about 92 million barrels a day. But if it gets backed up like it has been, for better than 30 hours, it does uh, uh, prove to be challenging. We're looking at from two different sources here of Vortexa and uh, tanker traffic traffic container uh, followers uh, that uh, it's about 15 million barrels, right? So it's not huge, about 15% of uh, the daily demand that's out there in the market. That's the high end, uh, roughly around 13 million barrels a day. Uh, If it starts to sail again, not a huge issue. It's Saudi, Omani, U.S., and Russian crude that's uh, been sailing, uh, both going northbound and southbound into the uh, global market. Quite a shock, though, uh, all transpiring overnight uh, in its worst uh, case scenario, and now some clarity coming to the market. Yeah, quite a shock. We'll see if they can shift that container sooner rather than later. John Defterius, thank you so much for that. Yes. On to our next drive again. Stop reporting its first earnings since January's frenzied Reddit, Reddit-driven rally. The numbers fell short of Wall Street expectations. But the stock is still up 950% this year. One can only imagine what the company had to say about that. Claire Sebastian has been tracking all the details. I can see disappointment, but I can also see a bright spot here, which is the e-commerce sales, which would significantly higher. Claire, talk us through the details of, of this one. Yeah, Julia, that is definitely the key number here. E-commerce sales are up 175% in the quarter. They now represent 34% of all sales versus 12% uh, in the same period last year. So clearly the company has been aggressively you know, building out its e-commerce capabilities. We see that with some management changes. But look, the stock is down significantly pre-market. It's about 11% uh, the last I checked. Um, and that is for a number of reasons. One, because on the top and bottom line, this earnings report did disappoint. I think investors were hoping for more. And they were certainly hoping for more detail. The call itself, well, very much oversubscribed, perhaps because of the the, the Reddit gang, it was a bit short on detail and a bit short in length. It was only 20 minutes. There was no uh, Q&A. People were expecting a bit more on the company's transformation. What we got was some broad brushstrokes on you know, building out the kinds of products they're offering, more on fulfillment, e-commerce, uh, all of that. Uh, so that's another reason why the stock, I think, is down today. But also because one question that a lot of people were asking ahead of this, given the meteoric rise in the stock price, is the company going to issue new shares to try and capitalize on that? Very deep in the regulatory filing, they did say they were evaluating that option. Obviously, that would dilute existing shareholders. That may be one of the reasons we're seeing the stock down again today. But I did look at some of the Reddit chatter. They are saying, some of them, GameStop is on sale. When can I, when can I buy? <laughs> yeah, they're not daunted at all. I mean, extraordinary. 20-minute 20 20 press and no Q&A. That says a great deal to me. You know, um, renowned short seller Jim Chanos 
on uh, Twitter. I was just looking through what his comments were. And he said most of the company's fourth quarter earnings per share were from tax credits and software sales were down 26 percent in the fourth quarter. And they make a lot less on a relative basis from hardware sales. So, um, yeah. He's not a fan, but as your point, it clearly is made. The Reddit guys are not deterred here. Also, interesting story in the mix here, very much tied to what we saw from Robinhood and the criticism amid the volatility of some of these stocks that Robinhood took action and should have taken action sooner and took the wrong action. They also remain undaunted, filing for an IPO. Confidentially, though, Julia, this is something that's increasingly popular uh, among companies filing for IPOs. This means that they don't have to release their sort of major regulatory filing showing all of their internal financials until about three weeks before uh, their listing. But it does show the fact that Robinhood is willing to go to market. Uh, It does show that they are confident in their future growth, even despite that major PR hiccup that we saw in January. And I think, you know, we see that the market, this is still a boom time for the markets. Interest rates are at uh, record lows. Retail trading is still hugely popular. And Robinhood clearly very keen to capitalize on that. But but another thing I think that the January episode made very clear is that this is a business that desperately needs cash and filing for an IPO, of course, one way to get that. Yeah, that's such a great point, Claire, actually. I mean, it also fulfills the mantra that there is no such thing as bad PR, but your point about yeah. the cash is um, vitally important, I think. Claire Sebastian, great to have you with us. Thank you. All right, now to the latest on the COVID-19 vaccine rollout around the globe. Hong Kong and Macau suspending the use of the vaccine from BioNTech and its Chinese partner, Fosun Pharma, saying the problem is defective packaging. Chrissy Lustout has been investigating. A big hurdle in Hong Kong's vaccine rollout due to concerns over product packaging. Hong Kong health authorities have suspended the use of two batches of the European-made BioNTech vaccine distributed by Fosun Pharma. In a statement, the Hong Kong government said this, quote, For the sake of prudence, the concerned vaccination should be suspended immediately for the time being while investigation is ongoing. So far, BioNTech and Fosun Pharma have no reason to believe that there is a risk to product safety, unquote. Now, for those like myself who have taken the first dose of the BioNTech vaccine, there's this from the Hong Kong Director of Health. We would recommend to those uh, who have received the first dose to wait for our further announcement because we do not recommend people to receive a second dose of a different brand. So please wait for announcement by the government. The vaccine rollout here in Hong Kong has been slow. As of Tuesday, only 5.4% of the total population has been inoculated. Health experts say 70% need to be inoculated to achieve herd immunity. And it may take some 300 additional days for Hong Kong to reach that goal. Christy Liu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the stories making headlines around the world. In the U.S. state of Colorado, the suspect in Monday's supermarket mass shooting will make his first court appearance tomorrow. Police identified 21-year-old Ahmed al-Alawi Alisa as the suspect, but don't have any concrete motive for the attack that killed 10 people. Most of the votes are counted in Israel's fourth general election in two years, but the picture remains muddled. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's party and its coalition allies currently below the threshold for a majority, though that could still change as counting continues. Hadis Gold is in Jerusalem to break it down for us. Hadis, how many more votes are left to count and are we looking ahead to election numero five? (laughs) 
Julia, well, we have about 90 percent of the votes counted right now. We're expecting an update really any minute now on the last bit of votes. There is a slight delay in counting the votes here because of the coronavirus pandemic. There's these special absentee ballots. We're expecting about a a few hundred thousand of those absentee ballots are potentially delaying some of the vote counting. But so far, 90 percent of the votes in. And we really don't have a clear answer on what the next Israeli government will be, because although Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party is expected to be the largest party in parliament, As you noted, his right-wing bloc does not seem to have a clear majority. There's 61 seats they need to have a majority for him to be able to stay in power. And it doesn't seem as though he, nor actually this kind of ragtag group of opposition parties, either have the majority. So we're really at a stalemate here, and it's not clear which way it's going to go. Now, as we noted, there are still votes to be counted. And in this sort of race where one or two seats could swing the pendulum, that could be the entire difference. We may also see a situation where a smaller party could be a kingmaker, a smaller party with maybe only four seats or so could turn and decide which party they're going to sit with. But it's hard to really imagine this scenario where we have parties on complete opposite ends of the ideological spectrum agreeing to sit together in a government. So what does that mean for the future of Israelis, whether they're going to be going back to the polls potentially? There is a chance that we would then have a fifth election for Israelis in the next couple of months if nobody can get this coalition together. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's political future uh, and his legal future is really on the line here because for Netanyahu, it's important to get a majority in parliament because he might want to get a law passed that would protect him from prosecution. He is on trial right now uh, for corruption and bribery charges. And if he doesn't get that majority, he might not get that law. And if there is a majority from the opposition, they could potentially pass a law uh, that would prevent him from getting immunity or prevent him from even serving as prime minister if he is indicted. So as it stands right now, things are murky. We've already had election day. We have no idea, though, what a future Israeli government will look like. Again, this could change in the next few minutes as we get those results in. But as of right now, stalemate in Israeli, in Israeli politics. Julia. Once again, uh, had a great job. We will, um, we will continue to uh, watch that closely for when we get that final vote count through. Hadis Gold, thank you so much for that. All right, for the first time, Brazil has recorded more than 3,000 coronavirus deaths in a single day. The country's nearing 300,000 deaths overall. President Jair Bolsonaro appeared on television Tuesday offering sympathy to the families of victims and saying this is the year of vaccination for Brazilians. Hmm. So to come on First Move, China's tech giant Tencent under renewed regulatory scrutiny as it reports a staggering profit surge. And the travel industry tells President Biden to reopen borders to international travelers or risk the economic recovery and jobs. It's all coming up. Stay with us. move live from New York, where the U.S. majors look set to claw back some of Tuesday's losses as bond yields behave for a fourth straight session, i.e. that means bond yields down. Reflation plays like banks, energy and industrials are all ticking higher pre-markets, along with rate-sensitive tech stocks, too. You can see the Nasdaq higher by some five-tenths of one percent. Chipmaker Intel, a big gainer after announcing an aggressive turnaround plan that blends continued chip manufacturing outsourcing 
with a $20 billion commitment to new in-house manufacturing, a positive development given the recent focus on global chip shortages. The news pressuring shares of contract manufacturing giant Taiwan Semiconductor on fears that it could see weakened future business, stiffer competition, although uh, Taiwan's economy minister is playing down the potential impact. Meanwhile, China's gaming and social media giant Tencent has reported smashing earnings with quarterly profits soaring 175 percent to just over $9 billion. It comes at a pretty delicate time for Tencent, where it has reported the founder, CEO and China's second richest man, Pony Ma, met with Chinese regulators earlier this month. Selena Wang joins me now. Nothing captures the interests of investors and regulators like earnings like this. Just walk us through the numbers here because they had a pretty phenomenal quarter. Phenomenal indeed. If you look at the numbers, it is green across the screen. You mentioned that massive profit jump. Revenue also up more than expected, up 26%. It's fintech and online gaming arms up about 29%. This is China's most valuable company. It's known for its ubiquitous chatting app, social networking app, WeChat, as well as its online payments, WeChat Pay, also for its popular mobile games. It also has investments in hundreds of startups. Earnings here certainly incredibly strong, but it's largely being overshadowed by this regulatory concern, which could significantly hamper Tencent's growth. Now, according to Reuters, the Tencent CEO, Pony Ma, had requested a meeting with Chinese regulators. Reportedly, these regulators are looking into potential anti-monopolistic practices on the part of Tencent, potentially quashing other competitors. It's also been reported that regulators may be considering requiring Tencent to overhaul the fintech arm of its business, potentially putting it into a holding company that would be treated more like a bank. This is possibly what's going to happen to Alibaba's fintech arm Ant Group. If that does happen, this would significantly hamper Tencent's growth. Now, the company did confirm that this meeting did in fact happen, but they dismissed the importance of it, saying it was a regular meeting and a broad range of topics were discussed. Julia? You know, it's funny, as I was reading through this, I lost count of the number of mentions of things like social responsibility, healthy operations, compliant and inclusive fintech products, prioritizing risk management or safety over scale. They were trying really, really hard in this release to promote the softer side of what is the country's largest business. And to your point, a monster operation, monster users, sheer power, I think, the strength of one of China's biggest tech companies. Selena, did they directly address the risk of interference from the Chinese authorities? Because that's what the risk is. Absolutely. I mean, again, the company tried to dismiss the importance of this meeting, but investors have been waiting for quite some time for Tencent to be the next one to be targeted. As you say, these companies are indispensable to nearly every aspect of daily life in China. And quite frankly, Beijing is getting frustrated and losing patience with the outsized power that these technology companies have. We saw this unprecedented crackdown on China's tech giants late last year, starting with targeting Jack Ma's empire and group and Alibaba. Of course, we've been discussing extensively on the show about why and how Ant Group's IPO had to get shelved. Now you're seeing a forced rehaul of its business. But what's interesting now, Julia, is that China is actually even further widening this tech crackdown, signaling that they're even going to ramp this up further. Xi Jinping recently said that they're warning 
more regulatory scrutiny on what they're calling, quote, platform companies. This is an extremely broad description. It could include other e-commerce companies like Pinduoduo, JD. It could include a delivery giant Meituan or ride-hailing giant Didi. So there's probably going to be much more to come. And when it comes to these tech companies and why China is so concerned, it is no surprise that you are seeing Tencent put in the list of all of their safety and data privacy concerns because what regulators say they're worried about is the misuse of consumer data, uh, consumer privacy, as well as how they could be hurting competition. This is something that echoes what regulators are dealing with around the world in the U.S., Australia, EU. But in China, there is also the sense that the government is sending a message that no one person, no one company is more important than the Chinese Communist Party. I was about to say, and unlike in every other nation in China, authorities rule and the lobbyists are nowhere. Selena Wang, great job. Thank you so much for that. All right, the market open is next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stock markets are trading and we are higher tech, taking a leadership position after Tuesday's more than 1% pullback. And that is the picture, I think, although we look like we're down to some 1% there. So we'll wait for Nasdaq, the Nasdaq to open up. I think we're a little early there. Yes. OK. And there we go. Higher by half a percent. Forgive us for that. We just had to warm up a little bit there on the stock markets. New economic numbers released today play into Fed Chair Jay Powell's argument that the U.S. economy still has a long way to go before it completely heals. U.S. durable goods orders falling 1.1 percent last month as businesses pull back on equipment spending. I bet chips playing into that as we see car makers slowing their production as well. That's something to watch going forward. In the meantime, Bitcoin on the rise Tesla chief Elon Musk announcing that U.S. consumers can now pay for new Tesla cars with the digital asset. He says Bitcoins paid to Tesla will not be converted into fiat currency like dollars. They'll just add it, of course, to the cash on the balance sheet, the Bitcoin cash on the balance sheet. People outside the United States should be able to place their Tesla order with Bitcoin later this year. All right, the travel industry now calling on President Biden to reopen the United States to international visitors in a letter to the White House. It warns that the economic recovery is at stake. Opening borders by July 4th would mean $30 billion in additional spending and the return of 225,000 American jobs in their estimates. Joining us now, Chip Rogers, President and CEO of the American Hotel and Lodging Association. Chip, great to have you with us. Talk us through the conditions that you're asking for. Well, we would like to see a return to normalcy. Of course, everybody does. It's interesting, the numbers that you just cited, that is based on only 40% of the 2019 activity level. So think about it this way. If we only got back to 40% of 2019, you're adding about a quarter million jobs back into the economy. And again, tens of billions of dollars of economic activity. So um, just a little return to normalcy, will go a long way towards helping us all. What are you hearing back from the administration? Well, nothing yet, uh, and but that's not surprising. We just recently sent the letter, and I know that right now the focus of the administration is, of course, stopping the virus here in the United States. But if you think about travelers and how they travel, um, they're always planning well ahead. We're already seeing this for the summer travel. You can look at what's happening in Florida, where summer travel is off the charts, and compare it to California, who has different policies in dealing with the with the virus, and the summer travel bookings aren't nearly as close. So travelers will plan, 
And if we create a roadmap saying this is when we believe the economy will open, this is when international travel can continue. If we hit these hit these specific marks, people will start planning for that. Crucial to this is um, the CDC guidelines. And right now, even for U.S. citizens, they're still being incredibly restrictive over people that have been vaccinated, never mind those that haven't. So to your exact point, the United States is getting cracking with its vaccinations. Europe, as one example, is is really struggling. It's tough to see the authorities being willing to see international travelers from areas like that when so few have been vaccinated and the virus is still pretty virulent. Well, look, you can begin bilateral talks. I mean, take a, a nation like Israel, for example, who's leading the world in vaccinations. There's no reason why we can't begin having international travel and, and it be done in a very safe way between the U.S. and Israel. The same thing for the U.K., who's doing a lot better than the rest of Europe. And so there right. are countries that are doing well, and we can start that process. And by starting that process, we show how safely it can be done. Yeah, we need a protocol set up for individual nations that are in some way on the same level, which is actually how it was handled in the beginning with virus cases and trying to manage travel. It it was, and it was even handled that way here uh, domestically in the U.S. And so we kind of have a roadmap of how this could and should work. Um, I guess our frustration all along, whether it be the CDC or any particular administration, is the lack of following the economic science. We hear a lot of talk about follow the science. Well, there's health science, there's economic science, All of that needs to be part of the plan. What about for people visiting the United States and the progress with vaccinating those that work in your specific example in the hotel and the lodging industry? How are you doing in terms of the percentage of people that have been vaccinated to meet potential tourists and travellers? Well, I think we're doing quite well. What's interesting is the rapid pace that the rules are changing and in a good way. For example, in the state of Georgia, just yesterday, the governor announced anybody above the age of, I think, 16 can now go ahead and get the vaccination. And so we've seen this really transform itself just over the last few weeks. Um, Obviously, the people that work in our industry are usually a little younger than, than the average person in the United States. And so they may not have qualified in some states. Uh, But we're seeing that change every single day. And in many states, take Hawaii, take Nevada, um, they've taken hospitality workers and they've put them at a level of 1B where they can go ahead and get vaccinated. So it's happening rather quickly. What's going to be the cost, Chip, if we don't get further clarity? Well, it has been devastating so far. I mean, people need to keep in mind that 2020 was the worst year in history for hospitality and tourism and specifically the hotel industry. This year, even under the best case scenario, we're still going to be below break even, which means more hotels will close, more jobs will be lost. We've got to get back to something that looks like 2019. And I know everybody wants that, but we've got to do it a lot quicker than perhaps many are expecting. How long to full recovery, Chip? What are you saying to your people? What are they saying to you? You know, it goes market by market. Uh, Obviously, if you're in a beach town right now, maybe you are recovered. But if you're in an inner city urban market that depends on meetings, conferences and conventions, um, in many cases, you're still closed. But the experts tell us that if everything goes according to plan, by the end of 2023, we'll be back to those 2019 revenue numbers. And I don't want people to be fooled by occupancy numbers jumping up in the summer. Remember, even last summer, occupancy numbers jumped up. At the end of the day, hotels have to pay their bills with revenue. So rates are considerably low right now. Even if occupancy jumps with your low rates, you still may not be breaking even. So we've got to get back to those revenue numbers, which, again, we think we'll see by the end of 2023. 
We shall see. Chip, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. And uh, fingers crossed you get some clarity from the government. I think everyone wants it too. Chip Rogers, President and CEO of the American Hotel and Lodgings Association. Thank you. All right, coming up after the break, Prince Harry is stepping up. He's joined Better Up, providing coaching and mental health services. The CEO is next as we look at a royal resume. Welcome back to First Move. Prince Harry has started a new job as a tech exec. The Duke of Sussex has taken the title of Chief Impact Officer at a company called BetterUp. It's a Silicon Valley startup providing online coaching and mental health services. Prince Harry is featured on its website as part of the leadership team. In a blog, he says he benefited from the company's coaching, saying, what I've learned in my own life is the power of transforming pain into purpose. He and his wife, Megan, recently talked about the strain of raw life on their mental health in an interview with Oprah Winfrey. And joining us now, Alexi Robichaud is the co-founder and CEO of Better Up. And just in full disclosure, our parent company, Warner Media, is a Better Up client. Alexi, great to have you with us. Just explain the mission, please. I read it's the to provide a gym for mental health. What does that mean in practice? Sure. Thanks so much for having me. The easiest way to think about Better Up is we're taking what's traditionally been thought of as executive coaching and combining science and technology and human wisdom, provide a way to put that into the pockets of workers and professionals worldwide. So we are a professional mobile platform that connects individuals um, with one-on-one dedicated coaching that they can do related to leadership, sleep, nutrition, parenting. And they get to do this over video chat and text message uh, from the convenience of their phone. You say it's IA, IA, AI, getting my letters mixed up, AI enabled. <laughs> what does that mean in practice? Clearly, I need sure, some coaching yeah. on speaking. <laughs> <laughs> we do have public speaking coaching, but I don't oh, think fabulous. you need it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Where do I sign? Yeah, so, yeah, apparently you have access already. So good, good, for, good for you all. Um, yeah, so you can think of similar to eHarmony. We use machine learning and um, artificial intelligence to help find the coach that's the right match for you. So we look across 120 different variables from the data you give us through a quick questionnaire. And we're able to match coaches with you based on everything from communication preferences to focus areas where you want to grow to make sure that you're getting a really tight fit with your coach. And it feels natural. It feels comfortable. It feels energizing and it feels safe. So explain Prince Harry's role. What is a chief impact officer? Sure. Yeah, we came to the title together because he and I had met and we were organically having these conversations about how the mission of BetterUp is actually bigger than BetterUp. You know, we're, we founded the company and um, he's been doing this work in his own life for, for years about how do we change this global dialogue around mental health to not think of mental health as just the absence of mental illness, but to really think about mental health as performance and realizing your potential and uh, flourishing, as we would say. And uh, that is a huge global impact that BetterUp can be a part of. And so as we were thinking about what he could do, his duties and responsibilities, where he was excited to contribute, we really were circling around, on the one hand, how can he continue to keep us accountable as a company to our social impact and our mission, and also accelerate that by expanding our global community, our global reach, helping to influence everything from our product experience to co-creating content in the product experience itself, and then helping to partner with companies and organizations globally to expand our impact around the world. So it's more of a leadership role or as me as a client, could I call up and say, hey, I really think I would benefit from 
Prince Harry's advice, can I set up a one-to-one advice session with him? Is that possible? That is unfortunately not possible. Um, oh. I think that would actually limit his scale and impact, although it would be really deep impact for you. I've, I've learned so much from him. Um, what we've done is we've put him in a leadership position so he can scale that impact globally. And so he will be making decisions and contributing um, one level up in terms of what is the types of contents we use and helping to create content that millions of people can use as well. And then helping on everything from product decisions to corporate strategy so that we're positioning the company to get it into the more ha- hands of more folks like you worldwide. And what is it about his CV that when you met him, I'm sure he's a high impact person anyway, but what was it about sure. his experience and his CV that makes you believe he's the right person for this role? I think two things. Um, you know, I think first and foremost, it's really who he is as a person. And obviously, I had never met a, a, someone who's royalty before meeting him. And I was just so impressed with his genuine and sincere desire to be of service and to make a positive impact in the world. And um, so for us here at BetterUp, the most important thing is always someone's passion and energy around our mission. And he has that in just abundance. The second is he's done the work, right? I think, you know, we all grew up watching him grow up. And it's incredible to see his own growth and development. And even as he shared in our blog, his own growth and transformation um, and his work related to everything from heads together to head fit to the Invictus games. He's d- just really has an incredible track record and experience related to advancing uh, and pioneering and pushing forward this mission related to mental fitness or preventative mental health. And so, you know, even long before we had the opportunity of meeting him, I had always, you know, had a daydream that maybe we would be, you know, privileged and lucky enough and fortunate enough one day to work with someone like him, who's been one of the leading voices in the world for mental health. And so we're really honored and delighted. Um, we truly could not have thought of someone better for this role. And uh, we're, we're really thrilled to work with him on it. Nor somebody more royal. I mean, the critics are going to look at this and say it's a whopping great PR stunt. All his attributes aside, it's a whopping great PR stunt. And in light of the Oprah Winfrey interview, which so many people watched, do you worry that he could perhaps be a distraction at the same time, just on a PR, if there is such a thing as a distraction in this game, but a distraction for the broader business? I think the main the main thing here is, you know, sure, we'll take the PR. Um, that's really not why we started working with Prince Harry, right? I think having had the opportunity to meet, meet him and get to know him, um, I would say, you know, that is all, one of the least important factors, right? His insights, his creative contributions, his unique experience here, it's really hard to put into words, but he has so much value to add to our members and our users, like some of your colleagues, as well as the, the, the game-changing um, work we can do worldwide in partnering with more organizations. So um, that's where we're focused and that's where we really designed the role around is how do we maximize that impact and how do we have more advocacy and more voices internationally around the fact that um, we need to be open and we need to be loud about what our needs are related to our own growth and development and mental health. And that's its own form of heroism and its own form of courage. Yeah, and I would say to your point, uh, Hilton, NASA, Chevron, Mars, Snap were all using you long before um, Prince Harry came on board, just to, just to illustrate this point. Um, Alex, I just want to get your take on something as well. Goldman Sachs have had a really tough week um, with some of their analysts saying, look, they're working 95 hours a week. They suffer workplace abuse. I know one of the things you also work on is sort of positive behavior in the workplace, too. I don't know whether Goldman Sachs is a client or not, but in that kind of example, how would BetterUp go in there and say, this is how we can help support your workers? 
Yeah, I can't speak to the specifics of Goldman Sachs. I, I haven't been briefed on that. But I will say in general, what we know from three to four decades of management science and psychology research, as well as our own personal experience, is what we have to do is break down this idea that there's a difference between our work self and our home life. And that the minute we go to work, somehow we're activating different skills or a different part of ourselves. The reality is there's this set of psychological resources and skills that underpin our flourishing, our well-being, both at work and at home, as well as our performance. And when we are mentally fit, when we have mental fitness, we not only perform better at work, we perform better in life. And so part of our mission at BetterUp is to get more corporate CEOs, more folks in the C-suites and companies around the world to really redesign work around the real data and the real science that says, you know what, if folks aren't flourishing, if they're not doing well, they're not going to be performing well. And this idea that I can extract work from them in the short term and that will somehow still help my business perform is not only short-sighted, it's misguided. And when you look at organizations that can consistently innovate and win in a creative economy, there are organizations that help people over time find that sense of well-being and that flourishing. And so what we're trying to do is change that dialogue. And that's, that's one reason we're excited to work with Prince Harry to give more energy and more enthusiasm and more insight to that mission. Can I ask how much Prince Harry's going to get paid for this role? As, as you can imagine, as a private <laughs> company, we don't disclose anyone's compensation. So we're, we're not able to comment on that. But he is getting paid. He, he, is, he is deeply invested in Better Up. And yes, he's very committed to the cause of the mission. But I can't comment, I can't comment on that. Because he's looking forward to a potential IPO. Um, Alexi, great to have you with us. Thank you so much and uh, good so luck much. with your work. Thank you. Alexi Robichop, the co-founder and CEO of BetterUp. Thank you. You're watching First Move. More to come. A big boost for Africa's largest telecom company, South Africa's MTN Group, saying it added nearly 30 million new subscribers last year. Our Eleni Jokos sat down with the company's CEO to discuss their future plans in today's Connecting Africa. We're seeing the demand. It's surging. It's not abating. You know, last year alone, 110% increase in data traffic. We're going to spend approximately uh, $10 billion worth of capex over the next five years to ensure that Africa has the infrastructure to power its growth. Do you see yourselves and the definition of what a telco is, a communications company is, starting to evolve mm. in the next few years? And what would that mean for you? That's exactly what we've uh, painted out in Ambition 2025, where we're basically saying that we're going to have the strongest connectivity business across Africa. We have 85,000 kilometers of fiber across the African continent. Um, you know, that kind of coverage is going to increase. But on top of that, connectivity are five platforms that will accelerate growth. Financial services is going to be a yeah. big part of that digital services, uh, gaming, music, video. And then we have what we call uh, the Africa API marketplace, where we bring small businesses together, expose them to our platform, and allow them uh, to exchange data, and through that exchange of data, ultimately monetize and create uh, you know, sustainable businesses. What's the most interesting call that you have received during the pandemic, where business was caught off guard and suddenly needed to think about the way that they should be digitizing. We should have done it a few years ago. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I think, you know, just the rapid uh, change in e-commerce, I think, mm -hmm. was surprising in many markets. Um, 
And you see these guys now on scooters all over the place, you know, delivering. We've seen in our markets that that pickup has actually been quite explosive. So I think people underestimated uh, just the latent uh, uh, demand for kind of e-commerce solutions, which are obviously all underpinned by connectivity. So when I talk about the continental free trade area and we say intra-Africa trade needs to increase from the current 15% that we're at right now, mm-hmm. can it truly be done without a strong telco sector and without executives like you thinking big? I would argue that uh, it's not possible that we get the, you know, the kind of growth that is anticipated under the agreement without the telecommunications sector. There is a massive fiber build and data build required over the next three to five years across the African continent. Um, and with unif- unified regulations, you know, you'll be able to move from country X to Y with your investment secure that uh, you know, this investment uh, you know, will yield the return. So the free trade agreement, I think, is, is super important and uh, the telecommunications sector can play a massive role there. Okay, and that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages in the next few hours. Search for at CNN. And in the meantime, stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow and Connect the World is up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.